Father in heaven, our great, good Father. Lord, that's who you are. You're a good Father, and we're loved by you. That's who we are. <laughs> what a great identity, Lord. Just to remind ourselves, we're loved by a good Father. And would you cause your good word to have its effect in our hearts today? I, I pray especially, Lord, today that you'd help your people to learn to be discerning and to think, um, to think well, to love you with all their minds. So help us, Lord, to put our minds to, to use and to bring glory to you with how we think and how, Lord, we pray that you'd give us greater ability to look at your word and to rightly divide the word of God. So come and help us, Lord, and help me to equip your saints in this way that we would be the kind of men and women of God that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. We've been in, well, we've been, since the 1st of January, been in a study on the attributes or the perfections of God, and we've come to the sovereignty of God, and we've dealt two messages on that. The first one was the sovereignty of God in creation and providence, and the last one, last week, was the sovereignty of God in salvation. And I know, if you were here last week, you probably had questions or objections about that, because there are quite a few that will surface as you, as you meet the sovereignty of God and salvation head on in the Word of God. All kinds of difficulties arise in your mind, and I thought it would be good for us just to take a Sunday to deal with some of those objections. So my goal is to help you as Christians be able to go to God's Word and to reason well and to seek to reconcile hard texts and see how you can put hard texts together so that they're not opposing each other, but they're friends. So that's my goal. Now, last week we were in John chapter 6, verses 35 to 45, and I pointed out six truths from John chapter 6, and I'll just mention them again. Number one, no one is able to come to Jesus on their own. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Number two, the Father has given Jesus a portion of mankind. All that the Father gives me will come to me, is what he said. Number three, those and only those people will come to Jesus, because they're the ones that he raises up on the last day. Number four, they're going to come because the Father will draw them. That's why they come. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Number five, this drawing is irresistible, because it always results in the person who is drawn receiving eternal life. Let me say that again. This drawing of the Father is irresistible, or you could say it's effectual, because it always results in the person who is being drawn receiving eternal life. Now, why would I say that? Why do I think that it's irresistible? Because of what Jesus' words, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and what is true about the one that the Father draws, I will raise him up on the last day. That means he's saved forever. He will be with Christ forever in heaven. And then, number six, once the Father has drawn a person to Christ, he is eternally secure. All those who come to Christ will be raised up by Christ on the last day. And that's John 6, 44 again. Nobody is drawn to Christ and then loses or forfeits his salvation and is not raised up by Christ on the last day. 
So those are six truths that emerge straight out of John 6, 35 to 45. Now there is a debate within the Christian church, and there has been for centuries on this subject, and the debate, the debate concerns why some people will come to Christ and others won't. Everyone believes that only some people come to Christ. Almost everyone. There are universalists who believe everyone's saved. But apart from those, and I've never actually even met one, but <laughs> there are some people like that. But apart from people like that, you have a, a debate. Well, why do some people come to Christ? Now, one school of thought says they come to Christ ultimately because it's their choice to do so. Man is the determiner in his salvation. The other position says, no, it's not man's choice, it's God's choice. God is ultimately the determiner in whether someone will come to Christ. Now, I stated my position last week. Let me just give you a little bit of history. For the first 12 years of my Christian life, I took the, the position that man was the one that determines whether he'll be saved or not. And 12 years into my Christian life, I changed my mind completely, <laughs> did a 180 because of scriptures that I was seeing over and over again, and that was in, two th uh, let me think, 1991, so it's been 30 years now, that I've changed my position, and now I believe that God is the one who ultimately makes the choice. Now this is not, this isn't a deal breaker whether someone goes to heaven or not. This is an in-house debate between people who love God, and there can be honest disagreement. So we just make that clear. Um, but that's the, what the debate is over. Now, my position is that a person comes to Christ because of sovereign grace. Because God the Father irresistibly draws that person to Christ. That's going to raise a bunch of questions in your mind. I think it will. At least it did for me when I was working through this 30 years ago. Brought all kinds of questions to mind. And it took a year or two of constant study to be able to work my way through all of these different issues that kept arising in my head. And I want to take you through some of those today. First one is, okay, what about John 12, 32? You say that this drawing of the Father is irresistible. What about John 12, 32? And this is the words of Jesus where he says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, Jesus taught that the drawing is irresistible because everyone who the Father draws is raised up on the last day. But if this drawing is irresistible, how could Jesus be drawing all men to himself? Wouldn't that mean that Jesus believed that all men would be saved? So either you have to be a universalist and you have to think that the death of Christ automatically saves every person on the planet. That would be one position that you might get from John 12, 32. Or is there another way to reconcile John 12, 32 with John 6, 44? which says, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Well, let's take a look. It's clear that Jesus did not believe that every person on the planet was going to be saved. He tells us in Matthew 25, 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, and these into eternal life. So he made a clear distinction. He said there would be sheep, who would be saved, and goats, who would be lost. So Jesus was under no delusion that his death was going to save every person that has ever lived. Now if that's true, then, okay, what does he mean when he says, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself? 
I think, okay, you check this out, but I think the answer lies in how we understand the phrase all men. Because sometimes the word all in the Bible does not mean each and every. Sometimes it means all kinds or all sorts. In other words, it can mean all men without exception, which would mean every member of the human race. It could mean that. But it can also mean all men without distinction, which means all kinds of people throughout the human race. Now what interpretation better fits the context of John chapter 12? That's what you should be asking yourself. What's the context of Jesus' teaching in John 12? Well, let's go back and see. In John 12, verse 20, we get the context. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now who is asking to see Jesus here? The Greeks. Who are the Greeks? Are these Jews? No, they're Gentiles. So this is unusual. This should capture our attention because Jesus' ministry was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and now we've got some Gentiles coming to Jesus saying, hey, we want to see him. We want to see Jesus. So Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And notice how Jesus responds. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what he means by that is for the Son of Man to die, be buried, be resurrected and ascend to the right hand of the Father. The, the time has come for those events to transpire. And then he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus was thinking about his death coming up, falling into the ground and dying, and the result of his death would be a harvest, bearing much fruit, and I believe he's thinking this way because this Greek, this Gentile, wants to see him. And that causes him to consider the results of what his death is going to accomplish. A worldwide harvest, not just among Jewish people, but among Gentile people all over the planet. And that's why I believe, he says in verse 32, if I'm lifted up from the earth, which he's talking about his crucifixion, we know that from verse 33, he was indicating what death he was about to die. He's not, being he's not talking about being lifted up in praise, like some of our old praise songs, if I be lifted up. Right. We used to think it was just praise the Lord and he'll draw. That's not what he's talking about. Right. He's talking about his crucifixion. So if I'm crucified, I'm going to draw all kinds of men from all around the planet to myself. And they will be saved and I'll raise them up on the last day. So... Every tribe and people and tongue and nation will have representatives in the kingdom of God because Jesus Christ died for all kinds of people throughout the world. Japanese people, Filipino people, Mexicans and Spaniards and Italians and Americans and Africans and Siberians. Every people group on the planet is going to have a representative because Christ died to redeem people from all of those places, all those ethnic groups. So, if we understand all men to be all kinds of men, it dovetails perfectly with what Jesus taught in John chapter 6. And in the context also supports that interpretation. So I'm very happy, I'm comfortable taking that position on John 12, 32. 
All right, let's move on to another one. What about 1 Timothy 2.4? How does that fit with Jesus' teaching on sovereign grace? John, or 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All right, so how does that work? If the Father has only given a portion of mankind to Jesus, right, all that the Father gives me will come to me. If that's true, that only a portion were given to Jesus by the Father, why would it say that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Well, there's two ways to approach this. I'll, I'll give you the two ways, and then I'll tell you the, the one I think is probably a little better than the, the other way. The first way is that, again, we're looking at all men as to be all men without distinction, instead of all men without exception. Not that God desires each and every person to be saved, but he desires his elect from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation on the planet to be saved. Now, some interpreters have taken that position. Um, John Gill takes that position. I believe that's the, it is the position of John Calvin. They take it all men without distinction. But there is another way that we can understand this text. Let me pull over there. God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's take it as all men without exception. Would that still be a, a text that would reconcile with sovereign grace? I think it is. I think those two passages can be reconciled very nicely, even if it means every person on the planet. And let me try to explain that. The text says that God desires. It doesn't say that he has decided or that he has chosen or that he has purposed. It says that he had a desire. He has a desire that all men would be saved. Now, is it possible to, for God to have a desire that he has not chosen to fulfill? That would be the question. Could God desire all people to be saved and not purpose or decide to save every person. God has chosen certain people to be saved, John 6, 37, but he desires all people to be saved. And this is the position I take on this text, 1 Timothy 2, 4. Now you're thinking, Brian, that can't possibly be true. That would make God schizophrenic, right? He, he desires one thing and he hasn't decided to do that thing that he desires to do. But wait a minute. All of us have desires that we decide not to fulfill all the time. If you're on a diet, you might desire a gigantic hot fudge sundae from Basket Robbins. You really want it, but you decide not to go down and buy it because you have a different purpose that overrules the desire that you have at that moment. Or I'll take another example. Let's say you're a general. I got this from the film Gods and Generals, um, but Stonewall Jackson, it talks about men in his army who would desert and they would, they would flee, they would run from the enemy and cower and hide. And there were times when he had to order an execution. Now there would be part of him, I'm sure, that desired mercy for those men. But he would not choose mercy, he would actually choose to have them executed because he had a higher principle that he had to order his life by as a general of the southern confederate states. So do you see that God may have desires that he intentionally determines not to fulfill and he may 
have intentions to fulfill certain things that he doesn't desire. Let's take the cross of Jesus Christ. There was a, a purpose of God that he decided would take place. We know that from Acts 2.23, which says that this was the predetermined plan, and by the foreknowledge of God, these men put Christ to death by godless hands. So a predetermined plan. That's what the cross was. And Acts 4.28 says that the sufferings of Christ were predestined to occur. So that's really strong language, right? God purposed the death of Christ. But did God desire the death of Christ on all levels? Well, if he desired it, he would have to also desire the sin that caused Christ to be put on the, on the cross. Because Judas's betrayal was sin. Uh, spy, Herod's spineless expediency would be sin. The Jews crying out, crucify him, crucify him, would be sin. You've got all kinds of sin. And, and then the Romans actually driving the nails and murdering the Son of God. All of that's horrendous sin. God didn't desire the sin, but he purposed the event because he had a higher purpose and principle in mind to take place, the redemption of, of his people. So do you see there was a purpose, or there was an event God purposed and decided and predetermined, predestined to occur, but yet on another level, there was some level where you couldn't say that God desired everything that went into that event because it was sin, and God hates sin. So sometimes God chooses things which he doesn't desire, and sometimes he desires things he doesn't choose. Let me give you another one that just to think on this one. Um, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Now, think about that verse. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. God makes that bold statement, clear statement. But there's another statement we have to balance this one with, and it's from Deuteronomy 28, verse 63. It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. And you will be torn from the land where you are entering in to possess it. So let's take both of those verses side by side. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. The Lord will delight over you to perish and destroy you. Now how can they both be true at the same time? It's one or the other, isn't it? Doesn't he have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies? Or isn't it that he delights to perish you and destroy you? Well, the way I understand this is that there's different levels in God. God is a God of compassion, and so because he's a God of compassion, he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. But that's not all that God is. God's a God of justice, strict justice. And so God loves his justice, and so he also takes delight in causing someone to perish or to destroy them if they're guilty of sin. Do you see that Like, there's different senses? In one sense, God doesn't take any pleasure in anyone who dies. But on a different level, in a different sense, yes, he does take delight in exalting his justice because that is 
his justice is perfect and good, and for justice to take place is good, so he does delight to bring justice to pass. That make sense? What I'm saying is that it's not so easy for us just to say one or the other. God's complicated. (laughs) He's a complicated being, and we're little pea brains down here trying to understand him. We're doing the best we can. So, sometimes God chooses things which he doesn't desire. Sometimes he desires things he doesn't choose. And remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the difference between the sovereign will of God and the what I call it, the moral, moral will of God. The moral will of God is what is pleasing to God. The sovereign will of God is what God has determined is going to take place. It's what he has decreed is going to happen. All history is the sovereign will of God. But yet, does God take pleasure in every little thing that happens throughout history? Absolutely not. He can never take pleasure in sin. That's rebellion to his rights as creator the moral governor of the universe. So we have to keep in mind there's a distinction between the sovereign will and the moral will of God. Now, when it comes to God's moral will, God is pleased when sinners repent. He's pleased when they believe upon His Son. That pleases Him. That's His moral will. But yet it may not be God's sovereign will to save every single person in the world. And so try to make a distinction in your mind. There are two aspects of the will of God, his sovereign will and his moral will. So if we understand those things, when we come to 1 Timothy 2.4, we can read it exactly the way it says and let all men stand as every person. And there is really no irreconcilable contradiction there. Yes, God can desire. He's pleased when all men are saved. They repent. They believe on his son. But yet he hasn't purposed or made a determination that he's actually going to save every member of the human race. Okay, let's take another one. Another big gun. <laughs> Second Peter 3.9 is another biggie. Let's read that text. Second Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. The, the promise he's talking about here is the coming of Christ. He's not slow about this promise that his son is going to return, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now again, we think, how can it be true that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and yet here it says that God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Okay, let's put our thinking caps on here. Who exactly is he talking about in verse 9? The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. You. Who's he writing to? Who's the you? Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He's writing to believers, of course those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. God is not, uh, God is patient toward you, not wishing for any, and think about it this way, put in brackets, any of you to perish, but for all of you to come to repentance. Now let me tell you why I would, I would be, I would feel at liberty to think along those lines. 
His argument is that God is not wishing for anyone to perish. And that's why he's delaying the second coming of Christ. He's waiting and waiting and waiting because he doesn't want anyone to perish. Does that make sense so far? Seems to be his argument here. But what is the truth about if God delays the coming of Christ centuries and centuries and centuries? Does that reduce or limit the number of people that perish? No, it extends it. Instead of hundreds, you have millions or billions of people that perish and go to hell because Christ didn't come back in the first century. If he came back in the first century, you'd have billions of people that hadn't lived, died in their sins and gone to hell. So it can't mean that God is delaying the coming of Christ because he doesn't want people to perish. Well, it's having the exact opposite effect the longer he delays the coming of Christ. So to me, that, that doesn't make any sense. Is there a better way to understand this verse than that? And I think, yeah, I think it is. The, the better way is that he's not talking about every person. God is patient toward you, not wishing for any people like you to perish, but for all people like you to come to repentance. Now, if that is what Peter meant when he wrote this verse, that would simply mean that God is delaying the second coming of Christ until all of the elect have come to Christ, and then he's going to come. In other words, that's what God is waiting for before he sends Christ back. Every member of those who were chosen before the foundation of the world, when the last one has come to faith in Jesus, there's no more, there's no more reason to wait. He's waiting until the full number of the elect, the whole church is gathered in, and then Christ comes, because there's no, no more reason for him to delay at that point. So... I don't know if that's satisfying to you, but that's been most satisfying to me in understanding this verse. All right, let's look at another question or objection. What about the biblical teaching on free will? Okay, if God has chosen who's going to be saved, what about the biblical teaching on free will? My question to you is what biblical teaching on free will? <laughs> Show me that biblical teaching. I've done searches, and you, I would encourage you to do this too. Search in an online app or whatever you've got, search free will. What does the Bible say about free will? There are some verses in the Old Testament, but every single one of them refer to the free will offerings that the people of Israel would give to God. It's not talking about free will to come and be saved. It's talking about you have the, it's not a compulsory offering offering, you had the free will choice of whether you wanted to bring an animal or not on this particular occasion. The only verse in the New Testament that talks about free will is in the book of Philemon, and it's verse 14, and Paul there is asking Philemon if he would like to make the choice of his free will to allow Onesimus to stay and minister to him or not. So it has nothing to do with the free will of believing or repenting or becoming a Christian or being saved. That's not even on the table in those, those verses. So if we just take the phrase free will and look it up in our Bible, we have no teaching on it regarding salvation. Now you say, well, the word Trinity isn't found in our Bible, but yet we believe in the Trinity. That's true. But we would have to ask ourselves, okay, let's, let's define free will Let's define it, and then maybe we can ask ourselves, does the Bible teach that or not? And there are two ways that people define free will. Some people define free will as ability. Some people define free will as liberty. Let me explain what I mean. 
ability, meaning I have the free will, I have the ability to come to Christ. Liberty, God allows me to make the choices I want to make. That's free will. So do you see the difference between the two? Ability versus liberty. The Bible does not teach we have the ability. Jesus taught the exact opposite in John 6, 44. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So ability, no. Jesus X's that one out in John 6, 44. Liberty, does God allow sinners to make the choices they want to make? Absolutely. That's why the world is in such a mess. That's why we've got so many wars and so many crimes being committed, because God allows sinners to make sinful choices. Yes, if you want to define free will as liberty, I'm all for it. I agree. God gives liberty. If you want to define it as ability, I don't agree with that, because I see Jesus teaching against that view of free will. Now, I can't think of any verses that say that man has the ability in and of himself without the grace of God to come to Christ. But I can think of verses that describe the sinner as being enslaved. So let's take a look at a few of those. 2 Timothy 2 verses 24 to 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Now notice this, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now if you are a bird in a snare, or if you are being held captive by an enemy, are you free? No, you're, you're captured. You're, you're a slave to your captor. And that's how the Bible describes the sinner in 2 Timothy 2. What about Romans 6.17? In many places in Romans 6. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now this is talking about their uh, post-conversion post state. They once were slaves of sin, but now they have been freed from sin. Again, he's not talking about the sinner being somehow free. He's saying that you were a slave to it. Or Titus 3, verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. So the Bible doesn't describe the sinner as being free. It describes him as being enslaved, captive. Now, is it true that God allows people to make their own choices? Absolutely. Liberty. We are free moral agents. God allows us to make our own choices. Does that mean or imply somehow that we have the ability to make spiritual righteous choices without the grace of God? No. Think about... Think about this. An individual will always choose according to his greatest preference, and his greatest preference will arise from his nature. Let's say we gave a pig and a cat a choice. And here's the choice. You can either live in a nice clean house, or you can live in a mud hole. Okay? Both of those creatures have the free choice 
I'm not going to coerce them in any way. They can choose whatever they want to do. The interesting thing is the pig is never going to freely make the choice to live in the nice clean house because he doesn't like that environment. And the cat's never going to choose to live in the mud hole because the cats don't like that. See, it's their nature. In order to get that pig to want to live in a nice clean house, we're going to have to take out the nature of the pig and inject the nature of the cat into inside of that animal. You know what happens in the new birth? God takes out your old heart of stone and he injects into you a heart of flesh. And that's why we love holiness and that's why we love Christ. It has to do with our nature. And as long as the sinner has a nature to sin, he's always going to make sinful choices. Now God will give him a wide array of different choices that he can make and he's free to make them. But to make a righteous choice, He's going to have to stop being a sinner and start being a child of God to make those choices. And he can't make it happen. God is the only one who has the power to do that miraculous work in his soul. Charles Spurgeon once quipped, Free will has carried many souls to hell, but never a soul to heaven yet. And I'm in full agreement with Charles Spurgeon on that. Did you know that everybody chooses according to their nature, even God? Even God does that. God never chooses to sin. God will never lie. And God will never die. Why not? Because within God's nature is holiness. That's why he'll never sin or lie. And within God's nature is this self-existent person who can't die. So it's his nature to exist, his nature to live, his nature to do righteousness and to speak truth. Even God cannot do things that are against his nature. Neither can we. Neither can the sinner. The sinner's nature must be changed. Okay, let's take another objection. If God is sovereign in salvation, doesn't that make him unfair? Doesn't that make him unfair? Now, There's two ways we can go with this. The person who's making that objection might be thinking when they say unfair, they're really thinking unjust. Doesn't that make God unjust if he is sovereign and chooses some and doesn't choose everyone? Isn't God being unjust? Well, what's the definition of justice? It's to give every man exactly what they deserve. Is God unjust then to condemn or to punish sinners for their sin? Oh, no, no, they're getting exactly what they deserve. But what about the people that go to heaven and don't go to hell? They don't pay for their sins. Are they getting what they deserve? Well, in a way, they are. Not personally, but they are in Christ. And Christ deserves everlasting glory. And God takes that sinner, puts him in his son, and so we receive the benefits or the merits of what Christ has earned on our behalf. So God is never doing injustice. He's giving justice to the sinner and justice to the saint. So no, we, we, that objection doesn't hold water. But other people think, no, I'm not talking about God being unjust. I'm saying, is God fair? And by fair, I mean, wasn't, wouldn't that mean that God doesn't give everybody exactly the same benefits and privileges? And the answer is yes. God doesn't give everyone exactly the same benefits and privileges. You were born in... Well, I assume all of you, maybe someone doesn't, but we're born in America. We weren't born in New Guinea. We weren't born in the deepest, dark jungles of South America somewhere. We were born in the 20th century. 
We weren't born in 800 BC where nobody knew about Jehovah in your particular country. Um, God gave us, some of us, believing parents where other people are born into this world were atheistic parents. We're born into a country where we hear the gospel through radio, we're going to church, or we read it hundreds and hundreds of times during our lifetime where there are some people that are never going to hear about Jesus their entire life. Has God given every person exactly the same thing? Has he been strictly fair with every person in the world? No, he hasn't. But God reserves the right to do what he will with his own. Romans 9 says he is the potter. We're clay vessels. And the, doesn't the potter have a right to do with the clay what he will? And that's his argument there. And of course he does. He has that right. Let's think about this. A wealthy woman goes to an orphanage. There's a hundred kids in that orphanage. She picks out two of them and she adopts them. Do we say that was a wicked old woman because she didn't, she didn't adopt all 100 of them? She only adopted two? No, we think she is so generous and kind. She didn't have to do that at all. And that's the prerogative of God. He comes into this wicked world and he chooses some to be his own children. And we should praise him for that, not accuse him of some injustice. Or take, the, take our governor. There's 100 people that are on death row and he chooses one of them and pardons them. Do we say, you're acting wickedly. You shouldn't do that. You're, you're, you're doing injustice to all those 99. Wait a minute. The 99 are getting exactly what they deserve. There's no injustice there. God is just being gracious and kind to one that he decided to pardon. And that's the, that's the way we should look at God's work of election and his work of sovereign grace in our lives. The wonder is not that God doesn't choose to save everyone. The wonder is that he would choose to save anyone. We have to flip the thing on it on his head and look at it from a different perspective. Look at it the way God looks at it rather than the way we look at it. Okay, one final objection this morning. How can God hold sinners responsible to do what they are unable to do? Have you guys struggled with that one before? I have. Wow, that seems unanswerable on the surface. If a sinner is unable to come to Christ, why would God hold him responsible and condemn him because he didn't believe in Jesus when he didn't have the ability to believe in Jesus? Let's try to go deep with this one. Let's get under the surface. First of all, man's inability to come to Christ is his own fault. Adam had the ability to obey God or not to obey God in the beginning. Adam deliberately chose to disobey God along with his wife Eve. Both of them together made that choice. They plunged the human race into sin. Mankind fell when that took place. So now they're in a state of inability because of what their forefathers have done. Imagine a man who asks the government for welfare support for his family because he's not able to take care of their needs. And we think, well, that sounds reasonable. Okay. But wait, we look into this a little bit further and we discover that he's not able to provide for his family's needs because he's deliberately had his two arms chopped off. I know this is a crazy analogy, but just go with me on this. And you say, well, why would he have his arms chopped off deliberately? It's because he's lazy and he doesn't want to work. And so he, gets, he has his arms chopped off so he can't work, so he doesn't have to work anymore. And then the government... Is supposed to pay for the support of his family. 
We would, would we think that that is a reasonable request? No, there's something wrong with that, isn't there? And that's what mankind has done. We've deliberately chopped off our arms. We made the choice. And now we're in a state of inability and we expect God to be uh, gracious to everybody, but it just doesn't stand. Not only is man's inability to come to Christ his own fault, but it results from the fact that he lacks the necessary will to come to Christ. And he is guilty for not having the right desire to come to Christ. He ought to desire Christ, but he doesn't. And so he can't come to Christ because he won't come to Christ. He lacks the will. And if you lack the will to do something, you lack the ability to do that thing. I'll give you an example from Genesis 37. There we find Joseph's brothers, and they hated their brother. I'll just read the text. His brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now notice, they could not speak to him on friendly terms. Well, didn't they have mouths? Didn't they have tongues? Didn't they have vocal cords? What do you mean they could not speak to him on friendly terms? They couldn't speak to him on friendly terms because they hated him. Their hatred caused an enslavement or an inability for them to do something good, which is to speak to him on friendly terms. Their inability was not uh, natural. They had mouths and tongues to be able to speak. Their inability was moral. It resulted from the hatred that was stirring up in their heart towards their brother. And the sinner's inability is not natural, it's moral. In other words, God doesn't hold the sinner responsible to do something that he get, has given him the equipment to do. For example, I may have just said that wrong, but let me rephrase it. God doesn't hold mankind responsible to fly because he hasn't given us wings. We don't have the equipment we need to fly. God has held men responsible to repent. Now what does a sinner need in order to repent? He needs a mind, first of all, to understand that he has done wrong. He needs a heart to realize, to mourn over that, that rebellion to God. And he needs a will, the ability to make a choice to turn to God from that sin. Well, has God given the sinner a mind, motions, and will? Yes. He's given him all the equipment he needs to make that choice. The fault does not lie within God not giving the sinner the natural faculties that he needs to, to repent and believe. The fault lies within the heart of that sinner who's turned away from God and wants nothing to do with God. They love their sin and reject Jesus Christ. So when we look at it that way, yes, men are unable to come, but the inability is still culpable, and God does find them guilty for that, that unwillingness to come. Whoever heard of a judge who would not hold a man responsible for his crime of murder merely because he hated his neighbor so much he was unable to keep from squeezing the trigger? Okay, just think about that. I hate this guy that my neighbor so much, I just can't keep myself from pulling that trigger. Oh, okay, judge says, I guess you're off the hook then. I said, no, he's committed a crime, he needs to be held responsible for that crime. His spiritual inability because of his hatred in his heart doesn't lessen his culpability. 
if anything, it makes him more culpable because he's, that just shows how sinful the man is that he would go to that length. So that's the way I would, I would argue, I think, from the, the objection, how can God hold sinners responsible to do what they're unable to do? He does that because he holds them culpable for real sin that is in their life, and that real sin is what has made them unable to come to Jesus Christ. So those are the, the six questions, objections that I wanted to bring up today. I hope this helps you, because you're going to face all kinds of different issues in your Christian life where you think, how does this go with that? To look deeper and to, to study hard and to analyze and to think. Be a thinking Christian is what, I guess what I'm trying to get. Be a thinking Christian, a discerning Christian, an analyzing Christian. Um, don't just say, well, I don't know. I'll just leave that when I see God. There, there are plenty of things that I guess we'll get... God will solve one day when we get to heaven. But there are things I think that we can go deeper and we can understand better and will help us to reconcile hard texts. So just like the Bereans in Acts 17, we need to see, search the scriptures daily to see whether these things be so or not. Amen. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that there are ways that we can seek to reconcile difficult texts we pray you help us to be better at this and that you would help us, Lord, to grow in our understanding of your word, its context, and how they fit with other texts. Help all of the people, Lord, here today, all those listening through Facebook, all that will ever watch or listen to this video in the future, Lord, to become the, the kind of discerning Christians that love you with all of our minds as well as our hearts and our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.